Well, this is part three of a four-part series that we are doing in this month of January that we've titled The Bride of Christ. And we're taking a closer look at some scriptures that, that really are designed to help shape our thinking with respect to our relationship with Jesus. And Matt kicked it off a couple of weeks ago, and we were looking at the precious uh, nature of the bride the blood-bought bride of Christ. We sang of the power of that blood, the hope that we have because Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And even that little line uh, that, and some of you, if you're new to the faith, you may say, that, that, I don't know what to do with that, where we talk about the blood being sprinkled upon us. Well, that's actually a, uh, that actually reaches all the way back to the Old Testament era of worship when after the high priest would complete the, the atoning sacrifice, one of the things he would do is to dip uh, a hyssop branch in the blood of the sacrifice and then he would, uh, he would sprinkle the people. Now he couldn't you know, get all you know, million or two of them. It was a powerful symbol though that there is forgiveness and there is cleansing from sin. And if you don't understand that context, that line of that, beautiful hymn might be a, a little odd if not off-putting. It, it is off-putting to those who don't understand though the nature of what Christ has done and so we are the precious blood-bought, blood-purchased bride of Christ. We also looked last week at Ephesians that tells us uh, we're washed with the water and in particular the word is that agent of cleansing that Jesus uses to prepare his bride for the day. Matt read a portion from Hebrews 10, and you can go ahead and turn to Hebrews uh, 10 and 11. We'll look at the last few verses of Hebrews 10 and read into chapter 11 here in just a moment. But we were looking last week at the significance of the word of God, and because it is the agent that Jesus uses to to remove every blemish and wrinkle and spot and unholy thing in us. We need to be people who willingly and eagerly submit ourselves to the word. You need to be in the word personally. So that means you read it, you meditate on it, you memorize it, you study it. In the word personally and then under the word. And we looked at a few uh, references that have to do with the value of a setting like this where where God has ordained the public proclamation of his word, the preaching and teaching of it, to have a, a cleansing, washing effect, a beautifying effect on us. Well, today, uh, we actually, this is a, a little different from what we had initially planned out uh, for the day, but we're gonna go to Hebrews, as I've noted, and look at the persevering bride. I wanna, I wanna point your attention uh, to Hebrews 10, and I want to begin reading in verse 32. Now, we read a, a portion of this section earlier, and, and I, if we really had time, it would be great to back all the way up to chapter 9 and read all the way to the end of 13. You should do that. If not this afternoon, maybe you can incorporate that into your regularly scheduled this week. But we don't have the, the time or even the, I think, the the capacity to absorb all the beautiful, powerful truth that's being laid out for us. But let me just summarize it uh, in a couple of brief words. We have a great high priest, Jesus, who is also the great and only sacrifice. He fulfills both roles, and he does it 
perfectly, does it in a way that the writer of Hebrews reminds us it's a once for all deal. It's the reason that that high priest, as Israel had for all those years, don't enter uh, daily, at least not designed and ordained by God at this point, offering sacrifices. It's the reason you didn't bring a lamb or a goat or a dove to church today or even a grain offering. All of those Old Testament sacrifices and offerings have been fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. And he shed his blood for us, as we've already noticed. And so because of that, when Matt read a portion of, of Hebrews 10, there are some powerful words of instruction. Let us draw near in full assurance. Why? Because through the blood of Christ, we can have a, a perfectly cleansed conscience. Let us encourage one another to love and good works. There are a number of very practical conclusions that flow out of it. So having said that, I want you to follow along as I read verse 32 Uh, of chapter 10 into chapter 11. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You could actually underline that little phrase, receive what is promised. That word promised is a, is a key to all we're going to set our hearts on this morning. Verse 37, 4, and he's quoting Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But, and and add these little words, we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now think about that. He just established two different groups of people. There's one group that shrinks back from what they see and hear from God Almighty, and it actually will lead them to soul destruction. And there's another group who actually believe what God reveals to them, and it leads to their preservation, or you could even say salvation. Now, in chapter 11, he's going to remind us or even introduce us to who those people are, give us a, a, a sampling. So let's read those first three verses. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old or some of your translations would even say, the ancients received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And then, I won't take time to read this, you will see that phrase repeated, by faith, and then comes a name. And he's gonna introduce us to people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and the list will go on and on. Let's pause for prayer. Father, there is a legacy of faith that you have established from of old. The Christian faith is not new. 
and there is not new truth that you have introduced to this generation or even the last one or the one before that, but from ancient times, you have revealed yourself in all your glory and you have called people of all backgrounds and manner of lifestyles to submit themselves to you as creator and king, as savior and Lord. And we ask that you would compel us by your spirit to enter that same legacy. Some have never taken a step of faith and how I pray that in your kindness you would so move their wills on this day, cause their souls to wake to these spiritual realities that this would be the day they begin this great journey of faith. There are others who've grown weary in this journey of faith. And the struggles and cares and overwhelming anxieties of this moment have so obscured their vision of you, their their memory of your great promises that they have all but given up. Oh, Lord God, would you please blow away the fog that veils their souls on this day and let them see the glorious God and the glorious promises, the glorious priest, who has entered the holy of holies in heaven itself for them. Renew them and strengthen them. And we ask that from young to old, your spirit would move in our midst today and bring life. So come, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now look at verse one, because there is a bit of a description of faith. It's not really a formal definition, as it were, but rather a couple of expressions that help us to describe what's going on in this legacy of faith. And the first phrase is this, it is the assurance of things hoped for. One author writes, verse one offers not a formal definition, but a recommendation and celebration of the faith that results as we acquire life. What do we mean by the assurance or even reality of things hoped for? What's interesting, if you do a little word study on on this particular term, it speaks of an objective guarantee. And many people don't feel like faith has objectivity to it. You'll sometimes hear people refer to faith as a blind leap. Well, that's not how the Lord uses this particular term. And as a matter of fact, in in a non-theological sense, it refers to a legal document that will, as you can see, this is a big long definition, effect a transfer of property and to show the legal right to possess it. If, if a title or a deed is coming to your mind right now, you're tracking where you should be. I, I've told you a few weeks ago about the little car saga. It hasn't been resolved yet, but God is showing kindness in multiple ways. And um, I actually surrendered a piece of paper along with the totaled car uh, a couple of weeks back And I thought to myself, you have the car, what good is the paper? But that's the legal document that says whoever possesses the car at that particular moment has a legal right to it. And faith, in a sense, is is a, a uh, a, a real demonstration, a document, if you will, to show that there's a legal right to possess something else. Now, I hope that in time I can report to you that there's a replacement car in its place that I hold the deed to. 
And let's say that I go into a dealership this week and we negotiate the terms of the deal and, and let's say that I slap you know, cold hard cash on the table, I pay it, he does the paperwork or she, they finalize it, they hand me the deed to it and when I start walking toward the parking lot, I'm not in the car yet but I already know I'm the owner. Nobody else is. That's my possession. And the faith of the Christian is this grand gift that God gives to say you are the possessor of rewards, of an inheritance, of a relationship, of a savior that you don't hold in your hands yet, but you've got the title deed already. Faith is the assurance of things that we are hoping for. Second phrase, it's the conviction of things that are not seen. Now this is where some people truly struggle, and I get it. You're putting your faith in stuff that you can't see with these physical eyes. You, you've never heard the voice of God, have you? And I would agree. I've never heard the audible sound waves of God's voice. Never seen him as he is. But you know, when we think of the conviction or evidence of things not seen, we're talking biblically about evidence that makes someone fully agree or understand or realize the truth or validity of something. And to be really specific, it, what we'll see as we go a little deeper into chapter 11 is that God started speaking to people long ago and they believed his promises. And he was promising things that they did not see in this lifetime. We'll see some of the specifics here, but it included cities and inheritances and rewards. They, they couldn't touch them in this life, but they were firmly persuaded just because God said Sometimes people say your faith is irrational. Actually not. It's not irrational to believe in something that I personally have never seen or experienced. Let me give you an illustration. You know, the human body functions with remarkable efficiency. Even Jesus makes reference to the digestive process in Matthew 15. Now he's explaining a greater truth. The point is he's saying it's not what you put into your mouth that defiles the body. It's what comes out of your heart that's what defiles you. But then he actually says in Matthew 15, uh, verse 17, do you, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then is expelled? Now, he's talking about the digestive process, and he knows because he's the one who created it. But, but what an understatement in, in so many respects that you put something in your mouth and it goes through the digestive process and, and then what's unusable is eliminated. I want you to think about the variety of foods and fruits and vegetables and meats and bread and pasta and oils and beverages of all kinds that you have put into your mouth this past week that were converted into useful and necessary energy. You did not even think about all that was taking place, but I, I wanna just take you to biology class again for a moment. I've never used that phrase in a sermon before. Welcome to digestion. If you can see that picture on the screen though, I mean, it's quite remarkable. And this is a fairly simple illustration of, of what's inside every one of us right now. Now I know some of you have actually seen this firsthand. How, how many of you would say, I, I have? You know, like in medical school or I, I see a couple of hands, great, okay. So this illustration breaks down a little bit for you, but not for the rest of us, and the exceptions to the rule prove what, what I'm about to say. Do you know that in, in your small intestine, God has perfectly structured 
all of this for the maximizing of nutrient absorption. Listen to this, and I, I'm just, I'm reading straight off the internet, so this is true. <laughs> Did you know that the surface area of your small intestine is greater than 200 square meters, which is about the size of a tennis court? You see all those little folds that are pictured there? The villi, and, and then they're actually smaller ones on, on each of the, the bigger ones. If, if you could actually flatten it all out, iron it so it's flat, what's inside of you would be the size of a tennis court. And the surface area of this portion of your digestive system increases by multiple levels of folding. The internal tissue of the small intestine is covered in these uh, villi, which I just noted. They're tiny finger-like projections that are covered with even smaller projections. The nutrients pass through the absorptive cells of, of the intestine via diffusion or special transport proteins. You see, it's not enough just to get it down in there, but they need carriers. Amino acids, minerals, alcohol, water-soluble vitamins, and monosaccharides, sugars like glucose, are transported from the intestinal cells into capillaries, but the much larger um, emulsified fatty acids, uh, fat-soluble vitamins, and other lipids are transported first through lymphatic vessels, which soon meet up with blood vessels. And some of you are close enough to see that. I mean, the, the blood vessels, the lymph vessels. And how do they differentiate, you know, who goes where? We're, we're happy when ushers help us at the door and say, here's a seat, come this way. That's not hard to direct, but I mean, there, there's all kinds of stuff that prior to this moment has been broken down and then it's absorbed here, you know, on this tennis court size area. And all you and I are thinking is, man, that tastes great, or it's not sweet enough, or that's a little too salty, or wow, I'll never eat that again. Those, in one sense, are unseen realities. And the vast majority of us, because we've never actually seen it for ourselves, have to take the word of someone else that it really is that way. And so God doesn't think it's irrational to give you and me a promise in his word, one that we can't go like touch with these hands or necessarily hear or experience and still believe that it is so. And he starts with himself. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. You must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, I'm gonna tell you right now, this is one of the billions of evidences in the universe that there's a God who exists. And please forgive me, but I'm just gonna tell you, if you really believe this just came into being by random chance, you actually have extraordinary faith. It is faith. But I think of what the, the gaps that have to be closed on that side of scientific theory, and it is theory, right? Those are extraordinary to me. I get it, it's hard enough to believe that a being you've never seen, a God, the God of the Bible, as I do believe, created all that, designed that. But he doesn't think that is irrational. And neither should we. Now, that has bearing on these opening phrases of chapter 11, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Some of you are stuck at that point of saying, well, until I see it for myself, hear it for myself, 
you know, taste it, touch it, feel it, I can't believe it. Well, you're shortchanging yourself. Look at verse two. For by it, by faith, faith just like we've described, the people of old received their commendation. See, not only is the assurance and conviction of their faith not crazy or irrational, but God says it's commendable. Now, what creates this kind of life? What creates this kind of faith? Well, again, I told you to pay attention at the end of uh, chapter 10 and verse 36 where you see what is promised, that little phrase. And, and the term promise it, it appears in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, 18 times. Now, chapter C- 6 is key. And, and you, again, you'll have to just go back there and, and read it and see it for yourself. You can't actually see that. That's not invisible. But as, as you read chapter six, you will see the author of this letter laying out the particular promises that God made to Abraham, and they were life-altering for Abraham, and consequently, they're actually life-altering for the rest of us. Then he says in Hebrews 10, verse 23, and we read this at the outset of the service, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is Faithful. So now we're beginning to lay a foundation of sorts. The promises of God are reliable because God himself is reliable. He's faithful. So whatever he says is faithful. And six times in this particular chapter, uh, you will read the term promise. We're going we're gonna to sample some of those, but verses 9, 11, 13, 17, 33, and 39, it takes us to the promises of God, the promises of God, the promises of God. Now, the promises of God do three things that we're going to consider this morning. And the first is this. They actually create a personal identity of faith. That's how you're brought into the legacy of faith, that you stand in a long line of others who take God at his word, believe his promises, and then begin to live their life so. Remember, we're not of those who shrink back who come, who come to the threshold of the promises of God, the revelation that he's given us, and, and peer into the room, as it were, and go, no, I, that's not for me. They shrink back to their destruction. Now, we're of those who, having seen the promises of God, actually believe them, we move into that room of life, that room of existence, as it were. And so we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now look at verse 13, because you see another Another statement concerning identity. Now we're jumping, we're gonna jump around in this chapter. That's gonna be frustrating for some of you and I don't even prefer to preach this way necessarily, but look at verse 13 with me of Hebrews 11. These all died and and he's talking, going all the way back to Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and there are more coming after this, but these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Strangers and aliens, some of your English translations would say. Strangers are people who are actually from another place. They may be longtime residents, they may have no plans to go anywhere, but they don't hold citizenship in that particular place. Same with aliens. They're foreigners who have settled down. And and here you begin to see that this faith that we're talking about creates a different identity for those who hold to it, who exercise it. And beloved, God wants us to see ourselves through this lens of faith. Most of us here hold an earthly citizenship in the United States of America. And and many of us love that. We're, We're glad, if not even honored, to stand in the legacy of of this nation, but you know, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, it's not your true homeland. We pay taxes 
to wherever you know we live and and now because i live in sandy sandy gets a portion of it the state gets a portion of it the nation gets a, por- a portion of it but don't even let that confuse you that's not where your ultimate residence is neither is mine all kinds of implications from this truth one is that you never see you should never sink your roots too deeply in one community or one country happy to be there stay there as long as God keeps you there but if he ever says it's time to fold up the tent and move then you say great where are we going Lord is this going to get me closer to my true homeland We'll always be strangers and aliens in this world, but that's not because we have no true citizenship. That's because our our genuine, eternal, lasting identity is with God himself and in heaven. There's a second thing that this faith does. It creates a future destiny. You know, another term that jumps out to you as you read through the book of Hebrews is the term better. And if you go back to 719, you'll see the author saying, you know, we have a better hope. We sang of it, the living hope. A better hope, a better covenant than what Old Testament Israel had. There are better promises, chapter eight, verse six tells us. Better sacrifices, chapter nine, verse 23 says. There's a better possession in chapter 10, verse 34. And then look at verse 16 here in this chapter. There's a better country and a better life, verse 35. You see, what happens is when people realize who God is and what his promises are, begin to see themselves with a new identity, they recognize that the ultimate destiny they're headed to is glory. It's heaven. It's the presence of God. We used to sing an old song when I was a kid, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid out somewhere beyond the blue. You know, and it had, some of you know it. No, your foot's already tapping right now, isn't it? Because it had a real catchy tune. And we used to belt that out when I was, you know, elementary school in particular. Well, it was trying to capture this great reality. Look at verses 14, 15, and 16. In referring to people like Abraham and others, others that we've talked about, the Lord says, people who speak thus, people who would say, you know, I live here temporarily, but my citizenship is in heaven. People who speak thus, making choices that they do, I mean, that's a message in and of itself. They make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Let me pause here. Remember the story of Abraham? God speaks to him when he's a a pagan idolater living in Ur of the Chaldees. He says, Abraham, it's time to move. I want you to move to a land of promise, a land that I will show you. So Abraham packs it all up and begins the move, waiting for God to say, settle down here. So it's that kind of thing that the author of Hebrews has in view here. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham could have gone back to Ur of the Chaldees, but he didn't. No, here it is, verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country and a heavenly one. Listen to this. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And it's not Jerusalem. It's not New York or L.A. or Beijing or Buenos Aires. It's a city you can't see right now. You need a new set of eyes. It's a city you can't walk at this moment. You need a glorified body. But it is there. And isn't it remarkable that there are some who, though not perfect, 
because Abraham wasn't perfect, Sarah wasn't perfect. I mean, their lives were filled with some really hard, ugly, sinful moments, but they were people of faith who recognized we have a new identity because of this God who's given us these great promises, and and we have a a future destiny that can't be found on this earth. God says, "I'm I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Why would God have to respond to anything that we do? If he commands it, we ought to do it. But that he would take some some personal joy, pride, if you will, as, as if, if I can put it this way, God looking down upon us, we can't see him with these eyes, but he sees all, all things, all things are visible to him, but he looks down upon people like this and says, those are my people. Are you counted among God's people today? Well, there's a third thing. The promises of God create a present pathway of faith. Now, here's where I wanna dig in for a few minutes here. Um, let, let's go... Um, Hebrews 11, we're still there. I want you to look at verse eight with me. The word trajectory comes to my mind here. Trajectory has to do with a path that's followed by something that has been launched, to be really specific, a projectile. Well, when God's promises get in you, it, it launches you. It creates a pathway, a course, a route, a direction. Now, I want you to think about the course of life for all those who've gone before us in the context of this chapter, but we're gonna look at Abraham first of all, and notice in verse eight, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Those of you who like to have the plan fully laid out, all your, all your questions answered, all the blanks filled in, all the stops along the way, this would be hard for you, wouldn't it? And, and God would, God is so kind and gracious. Uh, I don't know if Abraham was wired up just to be like, great, let's go. We'll get going and then you can tell us where this thing is gonna stop. Maybe, maybe Abraham was you know, a, a bit of a planner. Maybe it was a huge step for him. I don't know, but what strikes me as I read this passage every time is that he obeyed. He didn't have all the answers, but he had the promise. He went to live, verse nine says, in the land of promise. There's, you see the movement here? There's trajectory. Then we read on, the sweet testimony of Sarah is set before us by faith. Verse 11 says, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. What, what sets the trajectory and direction and even momentum of her life? The faithful God who's promised faithfully. Romans 4 touches on this. We were there a few months back. But when you combine what Hebrews tells us in Romans, you you really begin to understand the magnitude of what was happening there because these are two old people who are way beyond the time where biologically they can have children, but they have a promise from a faithful God. You see, she judged him faithful. That is, he's trustworthy, he's believable, he's worthy of credit. I don't know how this is gonna happen, but one thing Sarah is sure of is that God does what he says he will do because he's a God who never lies, he cannot lie. It means he can be fully trusted 
because he won't change his promises or his counsel. God is faithful. So how did God's faithfulness and his promise move Sarah to live? Well, you know, humanly speaking, there was no reason for her to believe that she would be the mother of any sons, let alone a son who would grow up to be a great man of faith who would fulfill the covenant promises that God had given to her and to her husband Abraham. But she wasn't making a judgment on the basis of what she could see with her physical eyes. You know, in one respect, everything around her said, don't believe this, that's crazy, that's irrational. Now she had the promise of God, and by faith she received power to conceive a son. God's faithful, God gets all the credit, doesn't he? But again, God looks at a woman like Sarah and says, I am not ashamed to be called her God. Look at her, trust in me. Living out, moving in where obedience takes her, though she doesn't have all the answers. You know, God was going to bring her son Isaac into the world through her dead womb. Not just because he had promised to her, but actually because 2,000 years later, he would bring his only begotten son into the world miraculously through the womb of another woman without a human father. Isaac had to be born, not just because God had promised it, but God was promising these things because Jesus was promised. And what a remarkable thought that we, by our faith, can have a part in God's ongoing work and story of redemption right now if we're willing to believe his promises and act on them. They create a present pathway. Here's a question in conclusion as we wrap up some things and don't, I mean, we still got a good 10 minutes here. (laughs) But in my notes, it's the last section, right? Could you live like this? Some of you do. Praise God. Others of you are, have finally grown to a point where you're like, you know what? I think God wants me to take the next step. Great. What is that? Because in all likelihood, God would, would call you to take a step that would go beyond what you can reasonably see or experience or plan for. And I ask you this, because I know you and I are the variable in this, but I'm still going to ask this question. First of all, has God changed since these ancients He's the same God. He doesn't change. He doesn't change in any way. Number two, are his promises different now? Now, I want to be careful here and acknowledge that there are certain things, like I said earlier, we didn't bring animals to church today to offer us sacrifices. There was a time, a season, if you will, where that is what God prescribed for his worshipers. They would gather in a temple or the tabernacle in the early days, and a priest would offer those sacrifices on their behalf. There's a whole uh, sacred ritual that God had ordained. Well, he's ordained different things. So there's some things that are different for us now, but I'm talking about promises that are related to the character of God and his ultimate work and, and plan, even as we saw last week, to make you and me a beautiful, spotless, blameless bride, to get us from earth that's broken down, wrecked by sin, to the place of glory we called heaven and everything else that has to happen. Well, no, the promises are the same. <coughs> and I wanna introduce you to someone. Many of you know this person if you don't, and that's a sweet picture. It's almost comical uh, in, in some ways, but just look into George Mueller's eyes. Some of you know about George Mueller. You see the dates of his life there. 200 years ago, God was at work in his life And if you read even just a quick summary about him, you will learn some astonishing things that in his earthly life and ministry, he was both Christian evangelist and the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. 
In his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. He provided educational opportunities for the orphans to the point that he was even accused by some of raising the poor above their natural station in Britain. You know, there was a caste system. There always is. And some people are like, you know, these are, these are low-born, poor-class people. They should stay there and not, like, rise. But, you see, the grace of God had so changed this man's heart that he said, no, these are children created in the image of God. Don't set limits on them. In addition to this, he established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 students in his lifetime. On March 26, 1875, at the age of 71, and after the death of his first wife, who he enjoyed 40 years of marriage with, he remarried Susanna Sanger, and at the age of 71, he began a new era of ministry, and for 17 years, he and his wife traveled the world and he preached to millions of people. He eventually had to come off of those rigorous travel schedules and commitments, and he died, as you can see from the dates, in his early 90s. One of the beautiful testimonies out of his biographical, autobiographical writings that are preserved, he's, well, let me, let me say one other thing. This man is known for his faith, some of you who've read his story know that if there was a need in the orphanage, they would just pray. He didn't actively raise funds. Like you, if he were in our day, you would never see him on a television special. You would never receive things in the mail saying, hey, you know, at the end of this calendar year, it's a great time to give. And there's, nothing, there's a place for that. God had just led Muller to the, to the place where he said, God knows a need. I'm just going to pray. He's given me certain promises. And, and the way he described it was this, faith is the assurance that the thing which God has said in his word is true, and that God will act according to what he has said in his word. This assurance, this reliance on God's word, this confidence is faith. You know how he began each day? You would think, well, maybe, you know, he, he must have just prayed around the clock. There were seasons where he did that. But you know how he would summarize his morning routine? Well, these are his exact words. The first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And you know how he got happy in the Lord? The first act was not prayer. The first act was to open this word, this holy book, and read the living word and let it get into his heart to where he would say, oh, there's my God again. He's great and powerful, good and gracious, patient, forgiving. He created the universe that is, including my small intestine. He sent his son to die for me. He'd get happy in the truth of who God is. And then, second of all, of what God is doing and has done. And if you take time to read through his biographical material, you will just find again and again that he, he would sweetly believe all that God had told him and then he would say, okay, let's go do it. Let's live it. Let's believe it. And if God says, I will provide for all of your needs out of my riches and glory, that's the reason you don't have to do a massive fundraising campaign. God knows the need. He's our father. Here's his promise. Let's pray. And the stories are astonishing. People who live like this have come to the place where they know their identity is being shaped by God's promises, not public discourse. 
is yours? Is your destiny determined more by popular notions or God's promises? And finally, is your pathway, I mean the pathway you are on right now, the, the, the what and why of your daily existence, is it actually established by, uh, just generally speaking, cultural expectations or are the promises of God shaping all that? You know, for some of you, the next step of faith will include a very simple step of, of obedience. It may be the obedience of belief. Just take God at his word and say, Lord, I believe. Some of you, God may have been working on for a while saying, you know what, I, I really want you to consider uh, a career change. That's a biggie. But God's not gonna ask you to do that sooner than he's prepared to help you in that. Some of you will forfeit all this because you, you come to the threshold of all that God reveals about himself and all that he lays out before you and you shrink back. You can shrink back in all kinds of ways. You can do it rebelliously and you know, defiantly. No, God. I mean, you can be polite about it, but it's still shrinking back. Or you, like the ancients and like everybody else that's come between them and where we are right now, you can step forward in faith and say, Lord, as you give me grace, I'm gonna believe everything you reveal to me and I'm gonna do everything you command and call of me. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Where are you? And what is the next step that you sense in your soul that God is calling you to take? Will you just take that one step? For some of, you, for some of us, it, it will mean saying no to sin, no to a lifestyle that we if we're honest, we like it. I'm not sure we want to give it up, but God says, your, your sin will destroy you. Come follow me. And so the step of faith will be repentance toward your sin and faith toward God for salvation. For some of you, it will actually mean that you, you get a little more serious about pursuing holiness, of obeying God as he reveals himself to you. And it, does, it, it means some lifestyle changes for you. You've got some things that need to be cleaned up we looked last week at 1 John 3, everyone who has this hope of, of salvation in Christ purifies himself even as he is pure. And that's a step of faith some of you need to take. Will you do it? Some of you need to take, take a step of faith which means God's not gonna eliminate all the risk in your life at this moment. You may see financial risk and say, well, Lord, if, if I could have a little more money in the bank account, then, then I would be free to serve you in that particular way or take that step, maybe God will do that, but maybe he actually wants you to take a step before you see the financial security, physical security, health security. There are all kinds of, of securities we can look for, but don't let them stand in the way of being the person God wants you to be. He is your security. While your heads are bowed and I trust that you're meditating on these things, would you just turn that into a prayer and say, Lord, here I am. I take your word at face value. I believe your promises. Thank you for the identity that you create for people like me. Thank you for the certainty of this eternal destination, heaven, a citizenship with you. Thank you. Now would you turn those two great realities into a trajectory that would honor you so that you would look upon my life as you looked upon Abraham's and Sarah's and, and Abel and Enoch and Noah and all the rest 
and say, I am not ashamed to call them my people. I am not ashamed to be called their God. Holy Spirit, please seal this work and word to our hearts. Cleanse us, wash us with the word. Strengthen us with your presence. Grow our faith that we too may stand in this long and beautiful legacy. All glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.